the cultural climate has been that you get into therapy when something has already gone wrong or when you're stuck and you can't do it alone versus what I think it should be, which is, you know, get into therapy before shit hits the fan so that you can take care of yourself and have this well-stocked toolbox. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 63 of That's So Maven. I am officially married, so yay for that. I took the last two weeks off to get married and go on our mini moon, and it was absolutely wonderful. I'll be sharing more details about the wedding on the blog, so you'll have to stay tuned for that. But just kind of my overall thoughts, it was really an incredible weekend, definitely like helped ease everything that I dealt with kind of leading up to it, which, you know, in hindsight wasn't so bad, but anyone who has planned a wedding knows that it's definitely challenging at times and you wonder if it's worth it. And I can absolutely say it is worth it. And I can also say that now that it's done, I feel like a huge weight has been lifted and I can now function at like full brain capacity. I felt like half my brain at all times was thinking about or planning or just you know, dealing with all the details of throwing a big event. And now that that's done, I'm like so relieved and just, I feel lighter and I feel like I'm able to focus more on the work that I have and the life that we're building here in San Francisco. And that just feels really, really amazing. And in terms of me and Kurt, it was just such a special experience. You know, we've always known that we were going to get married literally since day 10. We have been talking about it. So definitely wasn't something that we we thought was going to be like super new to us. But I will say that being a newlywed is it's fun and it's nice to have this like next chapter and to start thinking about the future more seriously and also to just not have a wedding <laughs> to plan. We can also start thinking about next steps for us. So that's been really, really cool. And I'm just really happy. And I feel like I'm like floating on a high. So if you've seen me recently or talked to me recently, yes, I am definitely in a very happy state right now. And I am enjoying it for as long as it lasts. And we'll see how long that is. But for now, I just I feel a deep sense of gratitude and also relief. And I kind of knew I was going to feel relieved when it was done. But literally when we got to the first destination on our mini moon, and I got in the bath that night, I was like, okay, uh, this is exactly where I want to be. And it was just like everything was just lifted off of me. And I just like soaked in that bath and was just so, so happy. I was also really happy to be in a bath because we don't have any baths in our apartment. We have two bathrooms and neither has a bath and it's devastating to me. So I took a bath every single day of our mini moon. We stayed at three different places and all of them had baths and it was just amazing. If you guys want to read more about our mini moon, definitely stay tuned on the blog for that as well, because I'm going to be chatting about all the places we went to. We did a week in wine country. So we did Sonoma, Napa. We just did Calistoga when we were in Napa. So just the Northern part of it, but we were kind of all over Sonoma. It's one of our favorite places in the world. We're definitely not new to it. So we were able to go to all the places that we already know that we loved. So it was a perfect way to kind of decompress and not have to worry about planning anything. We just kind of rolled with it and you know, if you're if you're on a mini moon or honeymoon, you're you're sort of like, what's money? And so, you know, now our bank accounts are hurting. But leading up to that week, you know, we just went in with an attitude of like YOLO, let's make the most of this. And it was awesome. And all the massages and mud baths were totally worth it. I will tell you that. Uh, but 
I'm back to work officially and just so excited for what's coming up next. There's going to be a lot of yoga, a lot of podcasts, new episodes coming out. I'm so excited for the ones that we've recorded already and for the upcoming ones and videos are coming back. I'm so excited to be filming my first video in a really long time this week. So I just, yeah, my brain is back and it's awesome and I'm feeling great and I hope that wherever you're at, whether you're in a up season of your life or a down season, know that it goes up as soon as it goes down and vice versa. So just roll with it. That's life. So right now I'm just loving where I'm at in life and know that that could change at any moment and just kind of accepting that. And you know, that's not something that comes easy to me and it's not something that I learned overnight. It's something that I've been doing for a really, really long time in order to practice self-compassion and just know that, you know, life has many seasons and that's what makes it beautiful. And it's also taken a lot of therapy. So that's what today's episode is all about. We have Kat Dolan on the on the show chatting about therapy. She is a holistic psychotherapist here in San Francisco. She's not my therapist, but I wish she was. No, I'm just kidding. I love my therapist, but <laughs> she is amazing. And I'm just happy to have her on the show today to talk about what therapy is all about and you know how it can benefit you, the different types of therapies out there, the differences between therapists and psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists, because there's just so many different people who can help you navigate your emotional and mental state and you don't need to have a diagnosis in order to benefit from it and that's really what we're going to talk about today so i'm really passionate about this topic you guys know that by now mental health and any kind of emotional well-being is probably my favorite thing to talk about i really want to remove the taboo and the stigma around supporting your mental health and Hopefully this can be one of the many episodes we have on this topic, but I thought this would be a great kind of intro into what therapy is all about. If you've been in therapy or you are currently in therapy, you have a sense of it. If you haven't, I hope this can kind of introduce you to what therapy is all about and maybe encourage you to go and speak to someone, even if you feel like you don't need it. That's something that we're going to talk a lot about is, you know, how therapy really is for everyone and that you don't need to be in a bad state or struggling with something in order to speak with a therapist. And it's honestly something that I wish we, were, we talked about, you know, from a young age and we get more into that conversation, but Hopefully this can be, you know, an opening for a lot of you guys and maybe send it to someone who is having a hard time understanding what therapy is all about and is kind of resistant to the idea of it. So yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm hoping this episode can be all about. And I have to thank today's podcast sponsor, which is ButcherBox, and you guys have heard me talk about ButcherBox before. I love them. That's where we get all of our meat from. We get one every other month and I keep it stored in our freezer and we get organic chicken and we get grass-fed beef and some bacon from time to time, like a good Jewish girl. But for real, it's all really high quality meat and it's delivered right to your door, which I really appreciate because where I live in San Francisco, it's actually really hard to find good quality meat in our neighborhood. So getting it delivered is awesome. And they've recently started selling fish. So they actually have salmon and it's amazing wild Alaskan salmon. It sells out really quickly. So you have to sign up in order to get the emails letting you know when it's in stock because it goes really quickly. So I highly encourage you guys to check out ButcherBox. If you want to save $10 off your first order and get a free ribeye steak, make sure you go to butcherbox.com slash healthy maven. 
That's butcherbox.com slash healthy maven, not the healthy maven, which some people have told me they've had trouble with because they've used the healthy maven. It's just butcherbox.com slash healthy maven. And it should take you right to the page where you, you can sign up for your first order. And honestly, I'm a huge fan and I hope you guys love it as well. So with that, let's jump into today's episode. Here's Kat. Hi, Kat. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, for chatting with me about a topic that I'm really passionate about, which is mental health and therapy and how to take care of your mental health from a holistic perspective. And you are literally the perfect person to have on the show to talk about this topic. Thank you. Thank you. So if the listeners don't know, you know, much about you and, and what your background is, can you just let them in on, on who you are and, and how you started your practice? Sure. Um, I'm Kat Dolan DeVos. I am a psychotherapist in private practice here in San Francisco. I've been seeing clients since, gosh, what year is it? I've been seeing clients for about six years now. And I'm licensed as a marriage and family therapist. LMFT is the license in California under which I have a private practice. But my my practice, I I say that I'm a holistic psychotherapist because my, my background and training Um, I I studied here in the city at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and the lens through which we were trained um, blended more Western um, schools of psychological thought and theory with Eastern traditions of mindfulness, spirituality, and so that's really informed the way that I view my clients. I I look at my clients in terms of um, not breaking down symptoms, but looking at how we can bring the whole system back into alignment. Um, and so for me, that includes, you know, I have this um, framework that I use to kind of conceptualize clients uh, in, in terms of inner landscape and outer ecosystem. And what that means is looking at, you know, daily routines, weekly schedule, like what does a client's life look like? Um, and that includes, you know, physical health, wellness, nourishment. How do you feel in your body? How do you feed yourself? Um, also branching out into community and relationships, like how you're, how you're connected in your life, um, the, the quality of your relationships, how you receive support in general, um, and also getting into, you know, any rituals or practices or, um, you know, ways of self-expression that you're engaging in, whether that's art or, you know, a meditation practice or a movement practice, dance, really like how do you come home to yourself? You know, when do you feel um, the most, the most alive and kind of using all of that information to break down what is and isn't working for a client. So we can do more of what is working, like boost that up while also figuring out what's getting in the way in terms of the things that aren't working as well. Um, and then working to kind of unpack and deconstruct that to create more traction and momentum. To me, it kind of sounds like you are a mirror in many ways for your for your clients to help them realize some of the rituals and the practices in their life, whether it be in their relationships or, like you said, their movement practice or the way they eat and, and where things aren't aligned. Because I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like internally, we all have a sense of what is you know working for us and, and what isn't. But sometimes we need a sounding board to come to terms with that, especially because there's so much noise in our environments. It's hard to know, you know, what's our voice versus somebody else's. Yeah, yeah. And I always tell clients that I don't know what 
what health looks like for them. I don't know what wellness looks like. I'm not trying to, you know, steer them in any one direction. And that's, you know, often a starting off point, like a jumping in point for us, really getting clear on what it'll look like and feel like when they feel better. So that we're kind of creating that destination together rather than um, that, you know, clients coming to me with this idea that I know what's going to serve them best. So like you said, I kind of reflect back what I'm hearing. I'm a mirror. I'm a container for them to come to these definitions on their own. So, you know, a question that I have is sort of, and you touched on it a little bit, but just the difference between holistic therapy versus traditional therapy. And I know, you know, there there are different types of therapy out there. Can you kind of give us an overview of, of therapy in general? I know that's like a a loaded question, but maybe just break down a couple different types of therapy and maybe how holistic therapy and the therapy that you practice is different from some of the other types that are out there. I mean, I think that's a really good question. And uh, as sort of a tangent, a lot of what I talk to clients about or even prospective clients or friends is how daunting it can be to, you know, to look for a therapist, especially if it's your first time in therapy and you don't know what all of this lingo means. It's like you can Google, you know, therapists in San Francisco and get a thousand hits and everyone's talking about themselves differently and their orientations and their theoretical models and their licenses. And that can be just, a, you know, that can be so daunting. So I'm happy to speak to that a little bit. Um, you know, if you, if you're looking for therapy or counseling you know, in in California, for example, there's you know licensed marriage and family therapists, and so an LMFT, whether you call it therapy or psychotherapy or counseling, that's someone who's licensed to sit with you and you know do both past trauma work and then also address whatever symptoms you're dealing with in the present, whether that's stress, anxiety, you know, relationship struggles, uh, depression, um, you know, work issues, anything like that. Um, a psychologist, you could also see a psychologist for those things. Um, a a psychologist might also be dipping in more to research and, you know, furthering the field that way. And then a psychiatrist is someone who would prescribe medication. So I don't prescribe medication. I do uh, sometimes consult with psychiatrists or if uh, my current or new clients are coming in and either wanting to utilize medication or wanting to taper off medication, I'll, I'll work with psychiatrists. But that's, that's not part of my practice. Um, and, and all of this is different than life coaches. You know, uh, a life coach... Um, and I'm not a life coach, so I, I don't, you know, totally speak to what they're, what they do, but I know that, um, that's a lot of kind of moving forward. Like say that you're stuck in a rut in terms of your job, your relationships, it's really assessing, um, sort of what I said earlier, what is and what is not working and then moving forward. And I think how that differs a bit from therapy or psychotherapy is that we're, we're looking at a lot of, you know, how your, how your past is affecting um, affecting how you're moving forward, how your past is getting in your way, um, and unpacking that so that, uh, we can create some long lasting change and movement forward in that sense as well. Totally. And I think, you know, sometimes just talking about what's happened in your past, even, you know, I I think something that a lot of people get stuck on when it comes to seeing a therapist or going into therapy is that they don't feel like 
their past or what they're going through is worthy enough of therapy. I know this is something that has come up a lot for for people who have asked about my experience in therapy. And I've been in therapy for most of my adult life and I, I struggle with anxiety and depression and I've talked very publicly about it, but I know that a lot of people feel shame in seeking out a therapist or asking for that kind of help. Why do you think that shame is there? And you know, I know stigma has been something that's been around for a long time, but I'm someone who's like, why is this still happening? Why are we not talking about the fact that we all should be tending to our mental health? But you know, yeah. what, what has been your experience with, with shame and therapy? Oh, that's a great question. I think a lot of it, like when you say shame, the first word that pops into my mind is should. I think there are a lot of shoulds associated with shame. And so, you know, when someone is carrying a lot of shame about, um, about whatever has happened in the past, I think the shoulds that, um, are there are that I, I should have been able to work through this. I shouldn't be impacted, impacted by it anymore. I should be able to get over it. I shouldn't need help. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of shame in terms of not being able to have done it, uh, you know, but by oneself essentially. And also, and, and this is sort of my, my personal, my personal crusade with mental health, you know, that's actually not even a term that I, I prefer to even use. I feel like mental health implies that your, your quote unquote mental health, your emotional health is something that's separate from your physical health or separate from, you know, the health of your relationships, the health of your brain. Like we can't separate health of the health of the body from health of the emotional state. You know, if we're feeling physically dysregulated, that means we also feel emotionally dysregulated and vice versa. And so, you know, mental health has carried, I think, that, that stigma for so long because there's this sense that it's something you, you seek out when, when something is wrong and when, when you can't do it on your own. When really, it's like we have this whole conversation about, about wellness right now and, you know, it's, a, it's class pass and it's yoga and it's green juice and it's plant-based. And where is the conversation about mental health in that? Where is the conversation about, you know, getting a good therapist and, and having that as part of proactive, you know, self-care, proactive health care too, you know, where, where right now I think the, um, and then this is changing a lot, but I think the cultural climate has been that you get into therapy when something has already gone wrong or when you're stuck and you can't do it alone versus what I think it should be, which is, you know, get into therapy before shit hits the fan so that you can take care of yourself and have this well-stocked toolbox for when things do go off the rails or, or just when you are, um, you know, not feeling well or not feeling yourself that you, that you have the resources to take care of yourself. Absolutely. I'm just, you know, here nodding my head like, yes, yes. And it's, <laughs> it's so true. I mean, my, my route into therapy was really because of, you know, a mental health diagnosis and, and shit had hit the fan. And so that, I think that's how a lot of people end up in therapy, but it's something that, you know, I continued through even when things were going well, because it is so important to, at least for me, I know. So let's talk about, you know, I, I know I'm going to be using the word should, and I don't mean it in that way, but mainly because I know what the answer is going to be this to this question is, mm -hmm. you know, who should be in therapy? Oh, I mean, I, I, 
the answer I would say is that everyone should be in therapy. Um, yeah, everyone should be in therapy, truly. Um, but especially if you are, if you're someone who is struggling with anxiety, if you're someone who, um, you know, just feels like things could be a little bit better, like they're good enough, but something is standing in your way from like going about your days, feeling, feeling vibrant, feeling like you're, you know, reaching this potential you want to reach. I mean, I think those are the, those are the times where people aren't getting into therapy because they're like, well, nothing's wrong. Like everything is good enough. Like what would I go talk about? I mean, certainly get into therapy if you are struggling with depression, if you're having panic attacks, uh, if you can't get out of bed, you know, if you are, you know, dealing with really intense mood swings, like all of those things. Yes. But definitely get into therapy. If you just feel like things could get better, or if you have things from your past that still are, are getting in the way of, of moving forward, or if you can't let go of something, um, those are the things that I think can, can really, um, just transform your life where you're like, yeah, things are, things are good enough. Um, and we just kind of carry on with things being good enough when they really could be, they could be, you know, so much brighter. Totally. And I think that this is something that we all kind of get stuck on is this idea that you need to have like some major problem in your life in order to be in therapy. And I, I think I held on to that belief for a really long time because that had been my personal experience. But, you know, the more I've talked to people about it and heard other people's experiences, you know, from the outside, you can have a reaction that's like, why would they need to be in therapy? Like they seem like they have it all together, but yeah. no one has it all together and nobody, you know, has, is, is done, you know, reaching their potential or, you know, working out issues that they have in their life. Everybody has relationships or at least hopefully has, you know, some form of relationship in their life, whether it be with a parent or with a sibling or a, you know, life partner, whatever that looks like. Most of us have relationships and relationships are complicated and not always easy and, and not everyone, you know, knows what they want to do with their life. And there's so many different reasons that have nothing to do with, you know, anxiety or depression or, you know, what we commonly believe as somebody needing to be in therapy. So I'm so glad you brought that up. I know I kind of baited you with that question, but <laughs> I wanted I wanted to hear the answer that everybody should be in therapy because it's something that I truly believe and I, I feel like it holds more weight when it comes from you. Well, and I want to speak to something, I don't know if I'm jumping in and cutting you off, but um, something you said earlier was, uh, was talking about, you know, the past stuff and the stuff from our past, whether it's families growing up, you know, past trauma, the stuff that gets in our way. And something I hear all the time is, you know, I don't, I don't want to dwell on the past or that's in the past. And now I just want to move on. Or, you know, what's the point of talking about this when there isn't anything that I can do about it now. And I think that that's, you know, a, a sticking point that people have often when thinking about getting into therapy is like, well, I'm, all I'm going to do is talk about my past and what I'm trying to do is move forward. And, you know, I agree with that. You don't want to get into therapy to just feel like you're dwelling and to feel helpless and to feel stagnant. Like we want, we want movement, right? It's like, that's what frees us up for what's next, but we can't move forward and move into the present present when we're kind of you know stuck or impacted by something that's happened in the past. Like I do believe that it's absolutely necessary to feel and to be present to and to grieve past losses, 
betrayals, pains, you know, heartbreaks in order to be available to our present reality. And, you know, when we have these old traumas or wounds, it's like scratches on a record. And, and so, you know, we're living our lives, we're moving forward, but we keep skipping over those scratches as we go about our, our day to day. And that, that does impede our flow. And so, you know, even though we're okay, you know, even though we're okay, we're, and we're, we're moving forward. It's like, we, we just have those, those little skips. So if, you know, in therapy, one of the things we can do is, you know, honor our losses and honor the grieving process. And so we can move forward in this way that's more vital and that, you know, where we're not skipping on the scratches anymore. And that's not dwelling, you know, that is what frees you up for this movement that we're talking about. Yeah. And I think, you know, some, somewhere that people get stuck is feeling like their problems are, are not worthy. I hear this a lot where someone will be complaining about something or upset about something and then they're like, well, first world problems, you know? But the reality is is that first world problems are still problems, <laughs> you know? Obviously, you can have kind of a subjective view at, at what a problem is, but they're objectively a problem in your life. And if it's blocking you from moving forward, then that's something that you need to work through. We all deserve joy. Absolutely. Yes. Just like mic drop on that. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> so something that I do want to talk about, which you kind of touched on a little bit, was finding a therapist that, you know, works with you. Because obviously there's so many different types. Like we talked about, there's, you know, psychologists, there's psychiatrists, there's psychotherapists. And among those, there are people who focus on on different schools. There's CBT and DBT, and you know it's kind of endless. Um, how do you find someone who can work with you? You know, do you interview different therapists? Like, what what does that process look like if you're, if, especially for I'm thinking from the context of people who have never been in therapy before and aren't entirely sure what they're hoping to get out of it. Yes. Well, one of my philosophies is that at the end of the day, you know, modalities are great, different orientations are great, but what is truly healing is being seen in a relationship that you feel safe and understood and cared for in. So, you know, most of our wounding as humans comes comes from rifts in relationships, comes from ways that we've been hurt by people that we've trusted or loved, you know, starting at a really young age. Most, not all, but that's a lot of where our wounding comes from. So relational wounding is healed in relationships. So, you know, regardless of your therapist's orientation or what they practice or what their degree is, it's, again, I believe at the end of the day, it's the relationship that's truly healing. So in order for that, you know, kind of magic to work, you have to find someone you click with. So I, I joke that it's kind of like dating, but it, it's, you know, it, the chemistry matters. It matters that this is someone that you feel like you can sit across from week after week and feel totally safe eventually, you know, sharing everything with. So a lot of people don't know that most therapists will offer a 15 to 20 minute free consultation over the phone. Take them up on that. And you can, you know, start by just going to a directory like psychology today, psychologystoday.com is, um, it's national and you can just Google your zip code and it'll pull up a whole directory directory of therapists. And yes, you can read through their specialties and their different, you know, orientations, but if there are people on there that you're kind of resonating with, where you just like, you know, kind of how they're talking about themselves and their practices, or you visit their website and some of the wording on there kind of, it, you know, piques your curiosity or, or that it's something that you're resonating with, 
call them, call them and schedule a phone call. And if that goes well, go and sit for a session with them. You do not have to continue working with someone if, if, you know, yes, it's going to be awkward the first time sitting across from someone, you know, therapy is, it's, it's uncomfortable. And I, I totally acknowledge that for new clients. I'm like, this is, this is probably weird, you know, to sit across from a complete stranger and say, nice to meet you. And then just launch into sharing you know, some things that are really intimate. So, um, so yes, knowing that it's probably going to feel a little awkward and uncomfortable talking to them or visiting with them for the first time. If, if you're not feeling that there's, you know, rapport that you feel comfortable with, or if they say something that doesn't feel right, talk to them about that. Like that I work in a very relational way, which means, you know, these things that come up where you're like, ah, I don't like how you said that, or you did a weird thing with your face. Like I, I want to hear this stuff, you know, cause chances are the types of interactions that are happening in the therapy room are also happening, you know, out and about in the world. Like if you're someone who, um, maybe one of your, uh, self-defense mechanisms is to be liked, is just you know, to be really well liked by everyone and be accepted and approved of. And that's, you know, something you've identified as, as a defense mechanism, or maybe something that you haven't recognized as a defense mechanism yet. That's probably going to show up in therapy. It's probably going to show up with your therapist. So those are the kinds of things we can talk about in the therapy room that you can then take out in, into your life. But if you don't feel comfortable talking to the person across from you about that, then honestly, it's, it's a waste of your time and your money. So, you know, don't feel shy bringing up the things that are, aren't working for you. Don't feel shy, you know, basically auditioning a, a few therapists. We're used to that and we want you to do that. Totally. And it really is, you know, if it works, it's a long lasting relationship. And, and that's what I have found to be most powerful. I know the first therapist I saw, I remember he had his laptop on his lap and was typing while we were talking and it really threw me off. And I had a really hard time kind of focusing while he was asking his questions and I was like trying to read what he was typing. And it was obviously a mirror to like my own, you know, issues. But I went a couple times and I was like, this isn't working. And that was when I was in college. And so I called you know, the mental health center and asked to be paired with somebody else. And then it was a great fit, but it's hard sometimes because we kind of think that our first interaction with the therapist is, you know, how it's going to go. But every person is so different. It always, you know, breaks my heart a little when I talk to someone who's like, I tried therapy, my therapist, uh, it just didn't work for me. Like I didn't like how my therapist did this or my therapist did this weird thing. And, you know, and that, that sat weird with me and I just didn't go back and I don't think therapy is my thing. I'm like, no, there are like, a, you know, a million therapists out there and we, every single one of us works in a different way. So it truly can be, I think one of the most reparative and healing relationships of your life or quite frankly, it can, it can be disastrous. Like we're just humans too. And, you know, and mistakes happen and, and that has, you know, reparative, um, power too, or it could just mean that it's, that it's not a good fit for you. And I think it's also true that, you know, we need different types of therapists at different points in our lives. Like my previous therapist was a woman and we worked, you know, wonderfully together for five plus years. And she saw me through some really crucial transitions in my life. And, and then I came to a point where I, where I realized that even though I still loved working with her, we'd come to the end of the work that we could do 
as two women. And I really needed to, like the next phase of my personal work was working with a male therapist, which is something I'd never done before. And so even though nothing you know bad happened in my work with her, it was just, there was a natural ending point and it was time for me to transition to a different style. Yeah. And I think that's so important to mention is just this idea that like different points in your life are going to require different forms of therapy. And I, I love the story that you shared. I think that's so true. I also think that like sometimes we go in with a certain kind of expectation. I know that I, you know, went into therapy thinking like, I only want a female therapist. Like I could only talk to a female and I've only ever had male therapists. So, (laughs) you know, we go in with what sort of we envision a therapist looking like. And sometimes it's important to kind of drop those ideas because maybe, you know, what you need is not necessarily what you know. Yeah. And the goal also is not to keep you in therapy forever. You know, I think that's a hesitation that some people have about going to therapy is, is like, well, it's expensive and I'm going to spend years in therapy. And, you know, some people do like, like you said, I, you know, I go to therapy every week. It's one of the best parts of my week. I've been going for 10 plus years and I probably will go every week for the rest of my life because it makes me, it makes me a better practitioner. It makes me a better family member and friend and everything else. Um, but that doesn't have to be true for everyone. You, you, you might be someone who wants to use therapy, you know, in a, a way that sort of shepherds you through different, um, events happening in your life or different, um, time periods, or you want to go work on a certain issue or you want to you know, build your skill set in one area. And maybe you find more things you want to work on, or, or maybe you just get into work on that one topic and then you move on and you can, you know, rejoin therapy at a later time in your life. It doesn't have to be this thing where, you know, you're committed to it and you're, you're stuck there forever. Totally. And I think what a lot of people have found is that they actually enjoy it. It's something they look forward to, you know, at first, definitely not. I know when, when I first, you know, got started, it was just like, all right, we're going in, we're going in deep. And then you know, once you build up that relationship, you don't have to go so deep every single week. It, it takes a while to get to that point. And I think at first it felt really daunting and it was like, oh, this is going to be forever because we have so much work to do. And then like it gets a little bit lighter and easier with time as you build up your own, you know, emotional practices. There's a lot to unpack at first. And I, I often warn clients that sometimes it does feel, um, you know, a little worse before it gets better because a lot of the things that we're unpacking it's stuff that hasn't seen the light of day for maybe years. You know, I, I use this this analogy where, you know, we all have one closet in our house that's just like, you know, so packed that you just really can't even open the door, right? It's like you just open it a crack and throw something in and then shut it really quick before everything like cascades back out. And for a lot of us, that's that's how we've been kind of stuffing things down, you know, out of necessity for years. And so when we get into therapy... It can feel relieving to actually, you know, open the closet and start sorting out just what the heck we've been packing in there. But that can also just, that can also bring up a lot of stuff. It's like, that's why we've been packing all of this junk away is because it's painful or we don't know what to do with it, or it's just really overwhelming. And so, yeah, it can be, you know, especially um, dysregulating at first, but as you're saying, you know, with time and with traction, that does start to ease and it's, it's more modulated, I think, where, yeah, every once in a while, maybe there's, um, you know, a, a big growth 
a big growth curve and a lot of work to be done. But by then we have more of a tool set that's built. And so it's not as overwhelming as just being able, you know, just um, beginning in therapy. Uh, And over time, like you're saying, it becomes a ritual. It's like this is part of the week that gets to be your hour. And the focus is just on you. And you get to sit and be curious about just where you've been all week and, and, and what's present, what's top of mind, where the energy is. And that's a really, I think, rare and special and unique opportunity to just sit and be present with ourselves and have someone across from us who's really curious to know how we are and and just where we are. Totally. And I think, you know, something that has been helpful for me is being able to like vocalize fears that I have in my head that I'm holding on to that I don't necessarily want to vocalize out loud in my everyday life and being able to sort that out in an everyday environment or not, not every day, but just like in a, in a safe environment. Yeah. Yeah. It takes the power away from them a bit. Right. Yeah. And just to the fears rather than, ha- than having them kind of looming in the, the corners of our, of our awareness. Completely. Yeah. So I want to switch gears here a little bit and talk about your practice specifically, because like you mentioned, it's, you know, kind of a, a blend of Western techniques and Eastern practices. And I'd love to, you know, hear some, some details about what that looks like. Sure. What does that look like? I mean, it looks different with every client. Um, the, you know, the first thing that comes up for me when I'm answering that question is I, I think about yoga. I've been practicing yoga for over 15 years and I trained as a vinyasa teacher 10 years ago and you know teaching is a, a part of my life right now but you know the practice has been for you know for that 15 years and not just the physical practice um, but you know breath technique and the you know the spiritual texts like the the yogic path and so you know that's a big part of, of my personal practice, and you know some clients that resonates with. But I, I don't always verbally bring that into session. But um, I guess one of the ways that I, or one of the reasons that I call my work holistic, is that I'm I'm doing a lot of um, emphasizing in session on the wisdom of the body, and you know a lot of times we do get so caught up in um, thinking about our feelings and thinking that that means that we're feeling them, but really we're just thinking about feeling them and thinking that that means that, okay, the work is done, right? I'm thinking about my feelings and I'm really good about thinking and talking about my feelings, but we're not actually letting the um, kind of physical sensations of the feeling sink in so that we're letting ourselves have the experience of sadness, have the experience of fear, um, or, or of joy or whatever it might be. Um, and also you know, when, when we're stuck in a question or, um, you know, working through something challenging, we're also trying to think our way out of that. And sometimes the body knows, right? The body knows that we're, you know, that's, that's like, you know, gut intuition. It, it knows how to lead us if we're able to just kind of stop the spinning of the thought processes and just, just settle and, and see what we notice. So a lot of what I'm doing in session is, you know, pausing clients, pausing the content and asking them just, you know, what do you notice as you say that what's happening in your body right now? Um, what are you aware of thoughts, feelings, perceptions to you know slow down the story and to turn up the volume on what's actually happening in the room, what's actually happening for them in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm just wondering, is this what you would call emotional fluency? I, yeah, 
Absolutely, yes. So I wanted to jump into that. So you kind of made the segue for me, but I I love what you're saying in terms of like helping to identify what different emotions feel like and how to work through that process as you feel them. I think this is something that I'm still working on where I notice I can go through the same cycle. I'm getting better at it and I'm bringing more awareness to it, but I totally notice, you know, when I'm getting anxious, I start to feel like it's like my stomach drops and my heart rate increases and I just, I feel like I'm running a loop that I can't necessarily get out of. And so I'm, you know, I'm bringing more awareness to what that emotion feels like. I don't know that I'm fully at a place where I can be like, okay, this is what I'm feeling. Here are my practices to, you know, help diminish this feeling, you know, let it sink in a little bit and then let it go. That's, you know, where I kind of get caught. But I, I love what you're saying about just helping people to identify what different emotional states look like because I, I completely agree that we we aren't really particularly good at identifying them until after the fact. If at all, right? It's like yeah. I, I think about that movie in, Inside Out and it's like I want everyone to go see Inside Out. You know, all of my clients see that because it's just this idea of, of being able to like name these different emotional parts of us is – I think something that only recently we've started to get hip to in terms of uh, teaching kids how to talk about their different emotions and put little name tags on their emotions and be able to say like, oh, this is my angry part or, oh, sadness is here. Um, because we just, you know, that, that hasn't been a thing we've done. And I, I definitely didn't get, you know, psycho-emotional education when I was little. That wasn't something that was, you know, part of my family culture or you know, school. So, and then we grow up and we're adults and we have all these feelings and just being able to slow down the process to be able to name for ourselves what we're feeling can be a lot of work. And, you know, you're naming anxiety and anxiety is what I see a lot of in my practice. And anxiety is, you know, in, in my view, it's actually the absence of feeling. It's a lot of sensation and it's just regulating, but it's, it's almost what we feel instead of feeling emotions. It's um, kind of stuck energy. And so often when we're feeling anxiety, it's because we're not wanting to feel something else or because we're uncomfortable feeling it or we're scared to feel it. So with anxiety in my practice, a lot of what we do is kind of notice when anxiety is present and then be able to kind of slow that spending to get curious about what it's blocking us from. So what we often find is, you know, we're feeling anxious about something, but what we're act what's actually underneath the anxiety uh, is sadness or is fear or is, you know, one of those other kind of murky, uncomfortable emotions. And so when we can feel that, it actually allows the anxiety to dissipate. I mean, I'm like having an aha moment right now because I feel like, <laughs> I'm so good at identifying when I'm starting to feel anxious and being able to kind of talk through it and, and identify what it is that's happening. But I'm not so great at, you know, and just what you said, at realizing that anxiety is really just a byproduct of, you know, another emotional state or several other emotional states. I think mine really is out of fear. And I think most people, a lot of our emotions are are stemming from fear. But yeah, I mean, just what, what you said, I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense why I feel like I, I get stuck on this loop over and over again is because I'm not really getting down to the bottom of, you know, what these emotional states really are. Yeah. And then the, we're, you know, when you're experiencing that, I imagine you're also kind of layering on ruminations too, where it's like anxiety is kind of the physical 
response to a stressor or to a feeling. And then the rumination is all of the story and the meaning making that we're telling ourselves about it. And that can almost be the most distressing because we're already feeling, you know, physically uncomfortable. And then all these stories are creating more overwhelm. And so that's where this emotional fluency piece comes in, where when we're able to recognize like, okay, here's the anxiety, you know, then we can kind of tap into what is this pointing me to? I'll, I'll tell you a story about that. I was, um, I was preparing to do this, this talk to about you know, 100 professionals a couple weeks ago, and it was about emotional wellness in the workplace. And I was so nervous preparing for it. And I just really struggled to get myself to sit down and just write out the speech to even just start, you know, brainstorming what I wanted to talk about. And so I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll watch some TED Talks for inspiration. So I start watching these TED Talks and immediately like all this anxiety just intensifies and all of these stories are in there like, oh, these, you know, these people on TED are so polished and they're so knowledgeable and what do you have to share? And you're going to look like an idiot and just like overwhelming anxiety. And in that moment, I was like, oh, this is what I talk about. This is, this is the spinning from the rumination and from the anxiety. So what is it that I'm not wanting to feel? And just by you know, creating that little wedge and giving myself an inroads into, into you know, curiosity, essentially, um, I instantly started crying. And I realized that I was terrified. I was just so afraid of you know, letting, letting these people down who were coming to see me speak. It was fear. And so by acknowledging that it was fear that was present, then I could actually take care of myself and, you know, do the things that I, I know are helpful when I'm feeling afraid. And by attending to the fear, you know, it ebbed and flowed and, and, and moved on versus if I just stayed in this place of being kind of locked in resistance with the anxiety, you know, I would have never gotten anything done. So, you know, I always say that the opposite of, um, opposite of resistance is, is curiosity. You know, the resistance intensifies the experience, but if we're curious, that creates an inroads in and usually offers some relief. Yes. Thank you for sharing that story. I think, you know, that's so true that when you kind of get, get stuck in anxiety or resentment, it's, you know, it's because you're, you're not really getting down to the bottom of what, what's really going on. And I like what you said about, you know, being able to identify it as fear and then working through practices to get through that. And this is maybe a loaded, a loaded question, but what, what are some practices to work through fear? Cause I think that that's something that I know I could use more of in my life and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. You know, I, I think, you know, fear goes in the same category as, um, you know, sadness, grief, anger, like these kind of edgy emotions that we just don't have a lot of practice feeling. And so there's a lot of aversion to them. Um, you know, these edgier, scarier feelings, I think often there's this thought of like, okay, well, if I go into the sadness, will I ever come back? If I go into the fear, you know, are all of my, um, you know, my, my worst case scenarios going to be proven true? And I think actually what we find when we start to really unpack fear is that that worst case scenario that we're imagining isn't actually that bad. And we'll do this in session sometimes when we kind of identify that there's a big fear there. It's you know, going through it like, okay, so what's the worst that could happen? Okay, and then what? 
And then what? And then what? And actually kind of following, following the path. Because when we feel fear, like we usually, we usually don't want to go there. We fear, we fear the unknown, right? We fear, um, coming across something that maybe is too much for us or something that we can't handle. But when we kind of nudge ourselves forward to take a closer look, it's, it's often the idea of fear that is more overwhelming than, um, or the story we're telling ourselves about the fear than actually kind of playing out the scenario and um, seeing what's on the other side of that fear. Totally. And I, I'm sure this was something that, you know, as you were preparing for your talk, you know, you could practice these questions on yourself of like what it is that I'm scared of, like letting people down or making a fool of myself. What happens if, you know, I screw up? Are people going to judge me for life? You know, like these, these stories we tell ourselves that are so dramatic, you know, when we say it out loud or when we journal on it or, you know, whatever practice it is that you use, you realize that like we, we've created some like really dramatic stories that probably aren't there. And self-compassion helps a lot. You know, self-compassion, the more I learn about self-compassion, the more I'm convinced that like this is the thing that's going to save the world. The science behind self-compassion as a practice and the way that it literally changes the structure of the brain when it's practiced regularly, it's, it's fascinating research. And, but even just, you know, in the moment being able to validate for ourselves, like, Oh, fear is here. Like I'm afraid this, this is a moment of suffering. Just to be able to recognize that for ourselves is hugely beneficial because when we're experiencing something um, like fear or, or overwhelm, you know, our system, our nervous system is perceiving that as a threat. And so it's activating the fight or flight, uh, the fight or flight system, like our amygdala is activated, cortisol starts coursing through our bodies, and then that just ramps up, you know, ramps up the anxiety. But when we can acknowledge that we're in a moment of suffering, whether it's fear, whether it's sadness, whatever it is, then we can actually kind of deactivate that system by just, you know, giving ourselves a little bit of self-compassion, like, yeah, this is tough. You're going to be fine. You know, this is scary or this is hard, but you can, you know, may I be kind to myself in this moment. Yes. You know, I can totally tell that you've gone through yoga teacher training because, you know, when you when you study the sutras and you learn about like the yogic path, you know, everything really comes down to either fear or love and the antidote to fear is love. And so just what you're saying, you know, having these fearful states or whatever, you know, challenging emotion, difficult emotion, sharp emotion that you're you're dealing with right now self-compassion is oftentimes the antidote and it's easier said than done. I know that's not something that I have mastered. I'm practicing every single day, but I notice that in those moments when I'm feeling some of these deeper, more intense emotions, just recognizing that it's happening and being like, you're still worthy and you are still loved. And how can you make yourself feel a little bit better in this moment? It can go a really long way. Especially when we are in one of those moments of pain, it can, that can be a really isolating experience where, you know, when we're kind of stuck in the moment of suffering, uh, we can kind of get into this false belief that we're the only one that feels this way or that we're alone in that. And aloneness or that feeling of isolation also triggers fight or flight because, you know, back in our hunter-gatherer days, if you were alone, if you were separate from the tribe, 
you wouldn't survive. And so when we feel isolated, fight or flight gets activated as a way to protect ourselves. So in those moments of suffering, just being able to acknowledge our acknowledge for ourselves that we're not alone, that everyone feels this way sometimes, that this is actually really normal. You know, that deactivation of the, of the fight or flight, um, kind of sympathetic nervous system response is hugely beneficial. Absolutely. And I like what you said about, you know, oftentimes our emotional states stem from, from this loneliness or aloneness. And, and what I've learned is that especially through having this platform is that so many of the things that I struggle with, I am not the only one struggling with them. I, mm-hmm. I doubt there's anything in the world where you are the only person struggling with whatever the situation is. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering as, and maybe this is, you know, from an outsider's perspective, I'm sure you'd be able to add more to this, but it feels like anxiety and depression are, are really increasing in more and more people in, you know, I'm going to focus on North America in, in this conversation because I, I don't think we can necessarily generalize to the rest of the world. But um, in North America, young people are really struggling with, with anxiety and depression and other mood disorders. And why do you think that is? Like, you know, why, why is it that so many of us are struggling with, with the same things? I think a lot of it is, it's like a lack of human connection. You know, it's, I don't, blame social media and technology for for all of this but there is a way that because we can be so connected remotely we're disconnected from that face-to-face uh, interaction and there, there there just isn't you know a substitute like it's amazing to be able to like you know speak to you over Skype and and talk to clients over FaceTime when they're traveling and to be able to connect people all over the world but to do that um and not be also in the same room as someone where our nervous systems can kind of regulate to one another. I think it does create loneliness and loneliness, you know, stems into anxiety, stems into depression, stems into all these other issues. So I think it is, I think it's isolation that creates a lot of it. And not to mention just, you know, feeling, like we're we're always on. Like we're not having. We don't have time to rest anymore. Like we're always accessible. And you know, of course, we know that there's the comparison that happens with social media too. So I think that that creates a feeling of not enoughness and just always, you know, always, no matter how hard we hard we work or what we're achieving in our lives, feeling like that's somehow not good enough. And I think a lot of us carry wounds around not being enough, not being worthy, not being lovable. Um, yeah. And so those wounds, I think, are just getting exacerbated by by everything that we're kind of absorbing from from the Internet, from media. Totally. And I think it also goes back to what you were talking about, about emotional fluency and not necessarily being able to identify our emotional states. Like we, we aren't taught that at a young age and, you know, I'm seeing more of it now, but growing up, I was not taught how to like identify the emotions that I was feeling. Like that was not, it was like, you're happy, you know, they, they show you the like sheet of like someone smiling, someone sad, someone crying. It was like, okay, that's what that emotion is supposed to feel like, like in order to like be sad, I must be crying, you know, but that isn't, that isn't necessarily what sadness feels like for everyone. And there was no discussion around that. So I think, you know, that feeling, not being able to vocalize what your various emotional states are like, and then also this pseudo connection that we feel 
online that isn't, you know, I, I'm someone who believes in the power of social media in both good and bad ways. I think, you know, it's, it gives people who don't have a community, a community and, and a place to talk about things where they might not have that in person. So I think it can be really special and amazing, but it does not replace in-person relationships. It does not give you an excuse to not go to events or, you know, go out for dinner with friends or go to the movies or whatever that looks like. It, it, it isn't an excuse to never leave your house. <laughs> and I think that we sometimes feel like we're being social because we're online, but it's it's different. They, they tap into different areas of our lives and it's important to know the difference. And it activates different part of our brains, you know, being online versus be, versus being in, in person. Different parts of the brain are active. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I believe in the power of it, too. Like, I, I, you know, created my social media account for therapy because I saw that there was there. That's kind of a miss on, on Instagram, for example. There aren't a lot of therapists talking about these things that we're talking about in the social media world. And so I wanted to create conversations about wellness and about, in terms of therapy and emotional uh, vitality and emotional fluency. And I've seen a great response from it, like people wanting to talk about these things in a community that feels safe, in a community where those, those conversations are being opened up. Um, so you're right, like it, it can be a hugely beneficial tool and people are looking to, to talk about these things and connect in that way. Um, and then there's the downsides too, as you're naming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I, I noticed. This was probably about a year ago. I felt like there was a real disconnect between what I believe social media to be and how I was using it. And I, I realized I had so much like anger and resentment towards it because I felt like I had to be there all the time and had sort of this like I had to live up to this expectation that other people had for me to deliver, but that wasn't the message that I believed in. And once I stopped being like, I have to be here and no matter what, like I have to post every day and it has to, you know, talk about this or just once I removed all the expectations and used it in a way that felt healthy and worked in my life, I found that the response has been so much better and, and that's something that I don't, you know, I, I speak from a very unique perspective as someone who has a business that's on social media. So I know my experience with it is very different. But a good example is like I spent this past weekend with a couple of friends and we went out to wine country and we visited vineyards and I barely captured anything. I didn't post on Instagram at all. And none of the people I was with are on Instagram. They don't use it. And you know, there's, there's, there was a whole conversation around, you know, oh, I should be better at it. Like I should use it more often. And it's like, no, like if it's not something that you need in your life, like don't play the should game and, and let it go. Like it's something that I use in my life for my business. And when I have, you know, something that I want to share or I feel passionate about, I'm so lucky to have this community that responds to it, but don't ever feel like you're supposed to be using it in a certain kind of way because I think that's where it creates this imbalance and leads to all sorts of feelings that, you know, can be as simple as just turning your phone off and walking away and, and letting those go. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, I mean, this is a conversation that I could go on about for I days. <laughs> well, and I, this stems back to a lot of what we were saying earlier, earlier as well in terms of, you know, defining – wellness for ourselves. And it makes me think of this term like optimal proximity, right? De deciding what your ideal, you know, 
the proximity to something like social media is going to be, you know, what's your healthy distance to it? Like where, where is that line um, between engaging in a way that feels authentic and that feels healthy and that, that then feels, you know, you cross over that line and it gets into territory that's actually increasing anxiety or that feels inauthentic or feels, feels unhealthy. Yeah. And, and to feel empowered with making those choices, like I'm always telling people, like if, you know, both for myself and for other people, like if someone doesn't inspire you or doesn't make you feel good about yourself, unfollow them. Like if something that they says triggers you or you find yourself like questioning your own decisions, unfollow them. Like it's, it's weird that we get attracted to things that don't make us feel great. Like I, I found that even on my own, like I, I followed people who are in like, oh, this makes me like question how I feel about my body or like what I'm eating for lunch today. And I'll mm-hmm. be like, wait, I don't need this kind of imagery in my life. I don't need this influence in my life. Like I can unfollow, but we're weirdly attracted to things that kind of make us feel like shit sometimes. And some of it is like, well, they have hundred thousand followers. They have a million followers. Like, should I be following this person? Is there something that I should be getting from this that all these other people are getting that I'm not? You know, so maybe continuing to follow, even though that's not like feeding your soul or doesn't feel authentic or, or isn't, um, isn't feeling helpful. Totally. I, and I found sometimes I'll be like, I'll see someone and I don't necessarily agree with their message or, you know, something about it kind of bugs me. And I've gotten to a point now where like, if, if I'm like compromised by what it is that they're sharing, I'll unfollow. But I of course have those moments where I'm like, what it is what is it that other people see in this person? Am I just missing the point here or are they all just not getting it? You know, but the reality is like people are triggered by different things. Everybody has their own life experiences that lead up to that moment when you see that one Instagram image or Facebook message or whatever it is. And that leads to a various set of feelings. And some people just aren't triggered by things that totally set other people off. Right. And what a good opportunity to get curious, right? Like, what is it about this that that's triggering me? And is there some work I need to do about that? And then as you're saying, like to also, you know, twofold, do the self-compassionate thing and just, you know, take those images out of your feed. Totally. So I want to jump into the hot seat questions. And these are the questions that I ask to every guest who comes on the show. So if you're up for it, let's jump into them. Okay. So the first question is, what's the one health habit you can't live without? Oh, that's a great question. Actually, I have been playing with this this term that I heard recently, and it actually was not in the context of health and wellness at all. But I was I was driving with a friend, and we were in her Prius. You know how the Prius has that little. Um, this seems like a tangent, but I swear. It's- <laughs> no, I have a Prius, so I'm wondering like where we're going with this. It makes back. You see the way that the the battery's being charged when yeah. you're. You know, when, when you're, you're driving, breaking, right? And it's called regenerative braking. And what I what I noticed for a long time is that you know when I when I wasn't working or was when I wasn't on like in the evenings or on the weekends, sometimes I would really struggle with myself in terms of like not being productive with my downtime or not you know doing like the quote unquote self care things like oh I don't really want to go to yoga or I don't want to cook myself something or I don't want to take a bubble bath and would just sort of find my myself just, you know, not really doing much of anything, just sort of kicking back in my house and, um, kind of f- floating around aimlessly, like not taking care of things on my to-do list. And I would, I was 
really beating myself up for not being more productive or not doing self-care in a way that looked like good self-care. And then learning about this idea of regenerative breaking, I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing. It really is like this complete disengagement that I need to do, like where I've always known that I'm introverted in the sense that, you know, being home alone, like having that downtime is replenishing, but actually it's having downtime where I also don't have expectations on myself to be getting things done or to even, you know, it doesn't have to be productive. I don't have to read in my downtime. I don't have to take a bubble bath in my downtime. Like I can really just veg out. And that's what is, um, is really regenerative for me. I need that after spending hours and hours every week, very, very engaged with clients. So that's become a big part of my, my wellness routine. Totally. Oh, I, I like so resonate with that. Just, I tell people that like self-care can look like a bubble bath or can look like six hours of Netflix, like whatever it is that you need to feel good in that moment or just like not engage with the moment, you know, like we have an expectation that either our time be used to like produce something or to feel a certain emotional state, but sometimes you just don't want to, you don't want either, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that can be the most nourishing thing there is. Absolutely. So the next question is, is there a business or a business person who you look up to? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, yes, of course. And there's, there's not a name or a business that's coming to mind right now. That's Let's okay. That's that. totally fine. Maybe like some qualities in, in people that you admire. Um, I mean, integrity is the first thing that comes to mind. Like, um, you know, people that are running their businesses in a way that is, you know, their integrity with with how they move through the world and what they're saying. And that really translates into the work that they're doing, where they're doing it because it's a it's a very accurate, truthful represent, representation of, of who they are. Um, I also think that that's, you know, what makes businesses successful when there's, there's honesty and transparency in how you're conducting yourself in your business. Totally. I couldn't agree more. So the next question, and I'm so curious to hear your response to this is what advice would you have for your 20 year old self? Oh my goodness. What advice would I have for my 20 year old self? Um, gosh, that's such a good one. I think I would say more self-love, you know, and that actually surprises me to hear myself say that because I don't think that I, like I, I, off the top of my head, I wouldn't say that I'm someone who's, you know, especially struggled with self-criticism or a lack of self-love. But when I look back, I think a lot of the decisions that I made or the struggles that I got into were looking for approval or love or acceptance outside of myself. And if I had been in a place where I was, you know, really in full conviction about, you know, about self-love, I maybe would have felt empowered to make different decisions or get out of unhealthy situations earlier or um, just be able to navigate in a bit of a different way. Absolutely. And my last question is, what advice do you hope to get from your older self? Like, is there something that you're you're working on that you hope your older self will tell you, you got that figured out? I'm trying to like picture my older self <laughs> and picture what advice she would give. Um, I 
think that my older and hopefully wiser self would would just continue to ask me to come back to the why behind doing things. Like I you know, just was spouting out, out about integrity and, um, to, you know, really coming back to like, why am I doing these things? You know, the, whether it's a, um, something related to business or something related to my personal life, um, connecting to, you know, what is my reason? Is this a should, is this something that has to do with, you know, life in San Francisco and what I think a life in San Francisco should look like, or, or is it's coming from what, you know, my, my field says I should be doing or what we tell women they should be doing, you know, like something like motherhood right now is a big question on my mind. And so coming back to like my whys around building a business and, or building a family and, um, connecting to my truth around that, which maybe goes back to the self-love question too, you know, maybe, or the self-love answer, um, connecting to my why and, and using that as my, as my gauge for decisions and, and paths that I take moving forward. That was beautiful. I, I'm certain, especially given your background, that you will get there. Thank you. So if people want to find out more about you and your practice, where can they do that? Uh, honestly, the best place is my Instagram. It's just at therapy with cat. And I post almost every day about, about this stuff. You know, my brain is constantly, um, churning on, on these topics. And I've used Instagram as kind of a mini blog to just, you know, delve deeper into, into these things like shame, like anxiety, like emotional fluency. And it's been such a sweet place to connect with other clinicians and you know, future clients and just people all over the country, all over the world that are thinking and talking about this stuff too. Um, and people can also connect to my website through Instagram as well. There's a link on there for that too. And I love, obviously I love talking about all of this. So I'm, I'm always, I'm always up for, for chatting with whomever about, about it, questions, um, concerns, topics they want to hear more about. Absolutely. And I highly recommend people follow you. I'm someone who frequently goes through like purges of, of people who I just, you know, find because I mean, we all move through different stages in our lives where things interest us. And where I am in my life right now is following people who inspire me and who share information that I find valuable in my life. And you are absolutely one of those people. So thank you so much for coming on the show today and for sharing more of your story and your work. I'm just really grateful for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a delight, and I'm, I'm just really excited to have connected with you. Same. Huge thanks to Kat for coming on the show today and chatting about one of my favorite topics, therapy, and I really hope that we can help break the stigma, more people can get into therapy, or at least start discussing you know, their mental health struggles or just you know, problems that they're having in, in their lives, You know, myself included. It's something that I do all the time because I want to make sure that people know that they're not alone in their struggles and that, like I said in the episode, like you can play that game of comparing your struggles from yourself to somebody else, but the reality is if it's something that you're struggling with, it's still a struggle, it's still a problem. So 
Don't play the first world problems game. If it's something that you are needing a little bit of extra help to work through, please go see someone. CAT is obviously an awesome resource, but if you're not in San Francisco, definitely check out psychologytoday.com. You can enter in your zip code and it will tell you a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a mental health professional in your area who can help you and you can read more about them. And hopefully the information that we talked about on today's episode can help you find someone who's a great fit for you. And once again, If the first person you meet with is not a great fit for you, know that you can keep looking for someone. It really shouldn't be something that you want to avoid. It isn't easy, but it's also something that when there is a right fit, you can really make some big breakthroughs and you can learn a lot about yourself and just be a better person, which is, you know, only benefiting you and in turn benefiting everybody else in your life. So hopefully this can encourage you to speak to someone if this is sort of the the gentle nudge that you need. And if you guys want to hear more about the show and just chat more about, you know, the topics that we discuss on the show, I would love if you join the THM tribe. It's a place where you can ask questions about things that you're struggling with and people can provide support. You know, maybe it's something that you're working on in therapy and you want to, you know, hear from other people who have been through something similar. It's an amazing support group for that. We also have lots of things going on in there. We have the book club that's coming up in a few weeks. So if you want to know what the book is and get reading it so that you can be a part of that, then definitely join the tribe. It's just facebook.com slash group slash THM tribe. It is a private group, so you have to request to join, but I will approve you and would love to have you there if you want to be a part of an awesome and supportive group. I'm really grateful to have the tribe and yeah, I would just love if you joined. And if you're looking to, you know, give me a wedding present or just do something special for me, I would love if you guys left a review on iTunes about the show and what you love about it, or maybe you have some feedback for me. That's a great place for you to do it. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't subscribed to the show already. That way, you know, if I take an impromptu break, then you know about it or, uh, you know, just just get updated on the latest episodes that are coming out. So definitely subscribe if you have not done that already. And with that, coming up next week on the show, we have Cassie Johnston from Wholefully on the show chatting about her Lyme disease diagnosis and what it's been like trying to heal it naturally and, you know, so many other topics. It's you know, an amazing, amazing episode. And I'm just so looking forward to sharing this with you. She's a friend of mine and I know she's been through a lot. So I hope that you guys can take her story and learn something from it and make some lemonade out of a a serious pile of lemons. So with that, I hope you guys have a wonderful week and I will talk with you again soon. Have a good one. 